Welcome to your next favorite jam with jam. I'm your host, John Angus McDonald. And um, I'm just here to sort of reintroduce a few episodes from the series, Your Next Favorite Jam with Jam, which started on the True's Instagram account uh, throughout 2020 and early 2021, our lockdown year here on planet Earth. Um, I wanted to sort of take the interviews out of the posts that we've made on Instagram TV and just repurpose them in a few other places because I think some of the chats really merit um, their own sort of space. Um, In this instance, I'm going to lead with my chat with Danny Goldberg, who is uh, the manager of my band, The Trues. Um, But that's just one of of many, many things um, that he does and has done. He's a like a great published author. He's done many books about rock and roll and his role in it. He's also Led Zeppelin's first publicist and he's worked with the Almond Brothers and Bonnie Raitt and Warren Zevon and Stevie Nicks. And then of course Nirvana, which was a whole other insane roller coaster. We get into all of it in the chat and he's ran major record labels and and he's done so, so much. And um, he's still in the game. He runs Gold Village Entertainment. We've been on his roster for a couple of years now. Um, I thought this chat was uh, very informative, and um, if you like any of the bands we just talked about, or if you're a uh, uh, you know music junkie, music history junkie, rock and roll junkie the way I am, I think you can get something out of this. Uh, it was originally recorded on October 21st of 2020, and I bring that up because right early on in the chat, he makes reference to the impending U.S. election. Um, he mentions that he's nervous about it. Uh, he's a political junkie, much like I am. We love to talk about it when we get together, but we don't dwell on politics in this episode beyond the fact that he makes mention of it. So I wanted to give you the context of when it was recorded. It was also the first episode of the third season. I called this the third season of your next favorite jam with jam because I did 12 episodes and then I just called the next one, next 12 season two. And then this last 12 was season three. So I did 36 of them in, in total so far. Um, again, if you are interested to go back and, hear all this stuff in its entirety it's all posted to the trues instagram tv um via our instagram account I'll, I'll drop a link below in the in the show notes that you can follow it back to i was also building a playlist every week your next favorite jam with jam was a project i i started to sort of pay forward great musical recommendations that it had that i discovered or had been made to me and that i wanted to pay forward um, because it's one of the great joys of my life to discover a new song and um, it could just make everything all right in a way that nothing else can. And certainly the year we were having, we we all needed more of that. So um, every week I added two songs to the list. I would suggest a couple, you know, a couple songs. And then I'd bring on a surprise guest and they would add a song or two and we'd just talk about it. Um, this conversation with Danny went in a million directions, but he does go back to adding a couple of songs Um to the playlist. So in case you're wondering what that's about, that's what that's about. I'll also link to the, um, the playlists on Spotify and Apple in the show notes. So you can, um, check them out if you want to. So yeah, full shows are on Instagram. Uh, the truth Instagram full playlists are on Spotify and Apple. And, um, yeah, it was a joy to, to do this, this series of things every Wednesday at eight. 
uh, to see, reach out and connect with, um, with people that I normally would see on the road or in an airport or at a backstage at a festival or award show. All of that was, has ground to a halt. So the only way I'm seeing people is, is through a tiny screen, but it was really good to reconnect with some people, um, via this, this series that I was doing. It was also a very good project for me, for my whole mental health and well-being to sort of give myself a target every week of like purposefully digging around for cool musical discoveries because it's it's one of the great joys of my life anyway uh to do that but this just gave me the added incentive of staying on top of it and it made a lot of things a lot better so without further ado i'm going to drop to our my chat with danny from october 21st in 2020 and uh, i really hope you enjoy it please follow along i'm going to post more of these outside of of the choose instagram uh starting now so enjoy the first one take care and there he is hey danny goldberg wow i feel very uh modern i, I did this you did it i know i tried to have you on a couple of, a couple of episodes ago and we couldn't connect the dots but that's okay i've solved the riddle of of uh, instagram live so uh, anyway it's fun there's to no, there's no going back that. now no going back. no how's you been man it's been a minute it's good, it's good to see you yeah i'm pretty good um as all things considered um you know uh it's it's uh I, I live about an hour and 15 minutes north of new york city so for many months i was just here it's a town called pound ridge in new york state and then after labor day i've been going into the city a couple times a week for one thing steve earl is back in the city he was in he would and 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 uh, you know as you know I, I uh, managed him uh, for many years and worked with him actually for 21 years between mm -hmm. first working with him as a record company and then as a manager so uh, you know and and so we have some um, but it's okay I mean it's weird we're all nervous about the election uh, yeah everybody I know anyway and uh, but I'm really grateful uh, for uh, you know to be safe and that the people I love most are safe you know yeah well that, that's what's most important. Um, so for those who don't know, I mean, you're, you're our manager. You're managing the truths right now. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I feel like that's a that's a drop in the bucket of this fantastic, long, illustrious career in, in rock and roll. And you've written wonderfully about it. And I've read probably three or four of your books. Uh, I read Bumping Into Geniuses long before we, we met. And I, I, I read the last couple since we've known each other. And uh and they're all they're all fantastic, but it's it's a it's a virtual walk through the history of the last 40, 40, 45 years of, of rock and roll, you know, it's, it's pretty impressive stuff. So, so I wanted to uh, start, I put a Led Zeppelin song on first, because I, I think one of the first gigs you had was as Led Zeppelin's publicist. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yes. I, I started my career, you know, I dropped out of college when I was 18. So I started my career as sort of a rock, wannabe rock critic, N never right. really made it. And after a few years of that, though, I, I made a lot of friends in the rock press, and I, which kind of credentialed me to be a rock publicist. And uh, I got a job with a PR company called Salters and Roskin, and Led Zeppelin became their client. And because I was the youngest guy there and the guy with long hair, it became my client. And I, and I worked with them f as a publicist for the 73 tour, and then they hired me to work for them full-time in 74, and I remained working for them until um, May of 76. Okay. I, I will say that I was working for them when they released um, um, Physical Graffiti, which was the album that has the song that you played before. Ron so, Muir, yeah. What, I just need to know, and I'm sure a lot of people want to know, just what was it like 
touring with Led Zeppelin in that era. I mean, it's it's been so talked about and discussed yeah. and, and made into legend and myth. And yeah, and I mean, certainly a magical group. But what was it like being in the eye of the of that hurricane? Well, um, by the time I worked for them in 1973, that's when the album Houses of the Holy was released. That was their fifth album. Right. So they've been around since 69. They've become the biggest band in the world. They've gotten used to being famous. I think some of the more extreme stories about them are things that took place in the before before I met them. You know, by right. the time I met them, they, they, they knew they were Led Zeppelin. They'd already released the album. They'd already done Stairway to Heaven, you know. Right. Um, and um, so, so I, you know, there was, there, it was the 70s. There was a lot of cocaine around. And I was not into that. Uh, I, I had done drugs younger in high school and so on, but I was not into that. But it was a lot of was around and that colored the atmosphere as cocaine does. Uh, it was, uh, it, I was just their American publicist. You know, they had a global career, but America's important market to, yeah. to, to them. And, um, and uh, you know, they were at their peak. I mean, the very first show I did uh, served as their publicist, they sold out uh, the Atlanta Stadium which was like 49,000 people, you know. And then the second night was the Tampa Stadium, 56,800, which, which I, I cooked up the press angle that it was the largest crowd for, for one artist, you know, for an artist show. Because obviously there have been festivals like Woodstock and yeah. things that were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. But for, an art, for, for, for a show, you know, with one headlining artist, it, it was a thousand more people than were able to see the Beatles at Shea Stadium. Not because Led Zeppelin was more popular than the Beatles, but because the Tampa Stadium had a thousand more seats. <laughs> so, well, they still that, beat them, I guess. But that press release really changed my life because it got picked up. I was just, it was a slow news night. Uh, you know, I had his manual typewriter and I typed out the press release. There's no, uh, no uh, laptops in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, and uh, and and got a cab over to the UPI office. UPI was this news service that had offices all over the world, and they would compile the news and then they would sell them to thousands of small newspapers who couldn't afford to have their own correspondent in London or Toronto or Atlanta or right. Tampa. And it was a slow news day, so you know, Zep breaks Beatles record became kind of this big story both in England and. America and it was immediately oh we got this publicist and boom you know so they you know it was just a lucky break they they were at that point in their career and there were two dots that any professional publicist could have connected but I got to be the one to connect it so it was intense you know it was really fun I mean uh, to be able to give people photo passes or tickets or get them backstage and I fell in love with the band during that tour I hadn't been a big fan before that I was a little old to be a Zeppelin fan right you know, my my I was a cream fan yeah you know? and but well, they were but, they were they were a generational divide you know that's the impression I get yeah yeah and they and they appealed to and that was the insight was that, that, that we were eventually able to convince a lot of the critics was, no, no, you're too old for this. This is the younger of the, you know, by this time, rock critics were like 27, 28 years old. They still thought of themselves as young, but they hadn't been a teenager for, they hadn't been in high school. They were 10 years out of high school. Right. And they didn't understand how Zeppelin read to a 14 year old. So right. the press was slow to pick up on Zeppelin, which was again, lucky for me because it was just that tour when I was their publicist 
that that they were ready to say, oh, wait a minute, we we missed this. This is actually the biggest band in the world. And and and, you know, whatever you think about them, they're talented musicians, you know, yeah. you, you know, I mean, the thing is, as as the years have gone by, the person who looms the largest as a musician to me is Bonham. I yeah. mean, um, there's literally never been another drummer like him. No. And he's a, he's a musician that redefined, we talk about Eddie Van Halen this way since he just passed, but like yes. he, he changed the trajectory of how somebody played the drums. Everybody right. that came after him, you know. Right. Every right. single person. That's that's rare to be the to person that changes the course of an instrument. You know? Yeah, no, Hendrix did it for the guitar, right. Hendrix did it too. And then it happened again with Van Halen. And then it happened again with Eddie Van Halen, but yeah. it's incredibly rare. So uh, anyway, you know, uh, I was in my 20s. I, I, I was experiencing a tour like that for the first time. Uh, I, I, I just was sort of in the day to day reality of it. Uh, and, um, you know, it was intense and I didn't want them mad at me. That was the main thing was to not right. have the band mad at me and yeah. to not have their manager, Peter Grant. Mad Peter Grant, yeah. Peter Same Grant was 300 pounds, mostly muscle, former professional wrestler, tough right. Cockney guy, not a guy that I ever wanted mad at me. So I'm going to move on from Zep real quick, but does that mean you were at the Madison Square Garden show for that was recorded for Song Remains the Same? Is yes, that, there that was actually three shows. They okay. sold out three nights and they filmed all three nights. And I, I was at all three shows. Yes, sir. That's amazing. Amazing. I mean, that's that's rock and roll history right there. I mean, I don't know how else you describe it, but that's that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to ping pong down the road. I mean, like, I recommend anybody watching go check out Bumping into Geniuses because you touch on Stevie Nicks and uh, your relationship with the Allman Brothers and Bonnie Raitt and then there's Warren Zevon and all of this stuff. I could pick your brain on it for an hour, but uh, but I, I want to talk to you about Nirvana because that's sure. the second song I put on. And, and yeah. as you know, we love Nirvana like like the rest of the world loves Nirvana. Uh, but the question I think I had about, and I want to ask you to put a Nirvana song on here that might mean something to you, but the question I had about Kurt Cobain and Nirvana was did you have a sense that you were managing because you were working with him as his manager did you have a sense that you were managing a sort of like uh such a legendary uh, uh force in music like I, I think he is shoulder to shoulder with like the Lennons and the Marleys and the Dillons he, he didn't have as long a career no or output but I think his impact and his connection was as deep yeah. So I wonder if did you have a sense in those few short years that that's what was happening or did that come after? No, no, I, I had a sense at a certain point. I, I didn't know it right away because uh, I wasn't paying as much attention. It was a younger colleague of mine, John Silva, who today is an extremely successful manager in his own right, has the Foo Fighters and so forth. But, you know, I, I, I just knew they were a good client because they had a buzz in this culture that I was interested in. And uh, we had like much the, the, the management company I had then is much bigger in terms of the number of clients than what I do now. Right. And so my my attention was much more fragmented. And um, but then I decided I better see them live. I, you know, we'd made the record deal for them uh, with Geffen and they were in the middle of recording and, and, and I had never seen them live. And they would and, and Kurt wanted to do a show to just work out some of the material in front of an audience perform it be before finishing the record you know and right. to get a sense of you know uh, of, of what what connected i guess with an audience and so i went to see them they opened to dinosaur jr at um, a theater in la called the palace you know it's like a dance hall it's no seats you know everybody's standing and uh i just was totally uh, um 
blown away by by him. I I, I just uh, uh, in that instant I saw this intimacy that he had with the audience, and a lot of them weren't even there to see Nirvana. Nirvana was the opening act. I mean, they had a little bit of a buzz, so some people right. knew who they were, but but dinosaurs. And 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 so it was like it, they went from being sort of the twenty fifth most important thing to me to to tied for first, right? Uh, you know that right. night. I mean, obviously, I had other artists that were bringing in short term more money, but mm -hmm. I, I I knew then it was very special uh, uh, that he was very special and the band was more more special than just a good band, right? And then. Um, you know, and then I got to know him a little bit because, you know, and, and he was a very special person also. Uh, and some artists, you know, just in their day-to-day -day life, they exude a certain thing. Um, you know, Jimmy Page had a little bit of that. Um, right. And he just, he was just one of those people that if there was people in a room, even if he wasn't saying anything, everybody's attention was kind of on him. Right. You know, and, and without him doing anything in particular to the that you could describe to, you know, he had that vibe and everything he said was, you know, he had these blue eyes, you look at you and, you know, you just felt this sense of connection. And then, you know, obviously then the record is finished and I'm not saying that I knew that Nevermind was going to be the phenomenon that it became when I first heard it, but I knew it was extremely good and it smells like teen spirit was really a much more um, melodic, a relatable song to a wider audience than anything that had been on their first album. Right. And then, and then when it went on the radio, I would say within two or three days, uh, a lot of us working with the band knew it was a smash. It got this instant reaction. So even though initially it was in a microcosm of a couple of radio stations, the amount of requests and the velocity with which it spread, you know, so that was like a rocket ship by, you know, September. So, you know, and, you know, it just, it happened in stages, but, but I, I knew that he was a rare genius. I'd been in the business. I was already 40. I'd been in the business since I was 18 or 19. I'd met a lot of artists, some of them very successful. Uh, and I, and I, and he was certainly, uh, you know, I had a different relationship with him than I had with Zeppelin. Zeppelin, I was just their American publicist. Nirvana, right. I was one of the managers. And then in the context of the relationships around the band, I ended up being the one that mostly dealt with him uh, right. because it's just, you know, that's the way dynamics happen. You know, I, I so, so does the, does the job get easier when things are flying at that, at that like breakneck sound barrier breaking speed? Does the job get harder or easier? Like for those two or three years when it was just a cataclysm, is the job, is your job easier, harder? Like how, how does it? How well, does it was, it was, uh, you know, um, it, it, uh, even though it was a very short amount of time between, you know, I met him, I knew him for the last three and a half years of his life. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, it was well, a short, short period of time. You know, they were famous for three of those years, you know. Um, yes. And um, the business part of it got much easier because you've got the, the leverage in every discussion, whether it's with the concert promoter or the media or, you know, the record company uh, or MTV or, you know, you know, radio station or whatever is, you know, and the same all over the world. They, they were a big band, you know, so that's much easier than when you're trying to make somebody big or, right. you know, <laughs> or they're on a plateau. Right. Um, you know, it's it's uh, so so that part of it became uh, easier. 
And then, the, but there's another dimension to some of these relationships. And that was certainly another dimension to, you know, my relationship with Kurt was then, you know, there were a lot of uh, very uh, dramatic, difficult uh, personal issues that came up. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of those kind of things, uh, I ended up, you know, being the so-called business person that was trying to help him deal with stuff, sometimes accomplishing things he wanted and sometimes feeling very helpless and unable right. to help, you know. Right. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, so the business part definitely got easier. But it, the byproduct, the fame, complicated, you know, he was already a very complicated guy, prone to depression, had a history of drug problems, very, very tough, painful childhood. And, uh, you know, fame uh, made him happy about being famous and made him happy about the acceptance of his music. But that was only that one piece of his personality. The rest of him that was unhappy didn't get any happier. Right. And he also was suddenly visible to uh, photographers and journalists and that's a that's a tough for anybody especially tough when you've got some personal problems yeah i bet but and you write about it beautifully in uh serving the servants which i devoured in like two sittings when you sent me a copy so i oh, anybody who wants thanks. to know more deep dive more they should get serving the servants and uh I, there's so many you know other stops along the way and i do want to get to some song requests from you because that's what this kind of thing is about but um but now you've got you, you you went through the major label business after that you you went sort of to the heights of that signing the likes of uh Stone Temple Pilots and even bands like like Hanson and I have a, a sister I grew up in a house where my sister was a Hanson maniac like a yeah. maniac level yeah yeah so that that had a big I guess I have you to blame for that uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding uh, but they were another cataclysmic band in their own right uh, they had a moment they did no they didn't uh, it's funny Steve Greenberg was the head of A&R Mercury, I'd hired, I was president of Mercury and, and he brought Hanson to me and he and I are still very good friends. You know, when you have all these jobs, 95% of the people drift away because it's like people that you knew in school and a couple stay friends. And Steve Greenberg's just one of my favorite people. And we worked together in a lot of different times. And uh, we talk about Hanson a lot because, you know, we shared that experience together. He has a podcast. I just, we just did a whole podcast about Hanson, you know, and, um, you know, um, they they endure. Have, they, they endure. They, they endure. Well, but they them. they they made a choice right after that first record. They were not going to uh, do anything they didn't want to do to be successful. They didn't make a record for another couple of years. They didn't work with the same producers or the songwriters that had done the hits. Mm -hmm. They they never left Tulsa. They they never left. Uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, Oklahoma City. Right. Uh, they, they, no, Tulsa, you know, they, they, they never, um, they never uh, tried to be a uh, fashion people or movie stars, you know, Taylor Hansen, you know, if he'd wanted to might've had like the career that Justin Timberlake had, you know, sure. uh, but he had no interest in that. They were a very religious Christian family, but among the loveliest, most tolerant people didn't fit my stereotype of born again Christians, right. nicest, open-minded people. They like big families. They all got lots of kids. They still live in Oklahoma and they play to their old fans. They're, ha they're comp they did no attempt to try to play the show business game. Right. They, they hit the jackpot once and walked away from the table, you know, and, Admirable in some and just have, and have a nice life. Washington Post did a story about this thing a few months ago, a, a writer named Jeff Edger that really captures it uh, correctly for me. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm just babbling. 
No, I love it. I, I, I tell you every single stop along the way. I didn't get to ask you about Warren Zevon or the Almond Brothers and Stephen Nicks, and I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. And you've written again. Well, well written what we're getting stuff. at basically is that I'm fucking old. You're, no, but you're not, not only old. You're 50, you're, 50 years. You know, it's a testament to your to obviously your obvious talents <laughs> and, and your ability to wear so many hats. And then there's got to be this element of like Forrest Gump luck in, in its own little way. Correct. You know Definitely. what I mean? Correct. Good, that blows, good. It, it blows my mind. And even to this day, I mean, like Steve Earle, who's one of my favorite songwriters ever, is your client. And, and you've still got this active roster of clients, us included among them. And, and, uh, and that brings me to Steve Earle. Oh, I just I put uh, yeah. Tennessee Blues on the playlist because yeah. I think, you know, as far as American troubadours go, I mean, he's up there with, with the best. And, and you, you alluded to hit your long relationship with him already. It's the longest I ever worked with any artist. And the clock still ticking on it is with Steve. It's it's more than twenty years. Uh, I, I I I depending which month. I think we're getting close to twenty one. Uh, and uh, you know, I first met him when I was at Mercury, and I I uh, I signed Lucinda Williams uh, because uh, the the, the um, uh, car wheels on a gravel road. He produced that record and. You know, uh, the original label uh, didn't want the record and it was offered to me and I uh, I loved it. And I and I was a Lucinda fan and it ended up being her most successful album and her first Grammy. And um, she had um, tried two previous producers with the same songs, threw it out. And then Steve did that version. So I called him. I said, look, I heard the other versions and um I just wanted to say, what a good job, you know, it's because uh, it, you nailed it. And that was the first time we ever spoke. And then when I started Artemis uh, Records, he was the first artist that I uh, signed, you know. Uh, and um, uh, so uh, and, and the first album that came out of that relationship was uh, Transcendental Blues. Um, so um, Washington Square Serenade, which is the album that has the song that you played, was the first album when I started being his manager that was the first album where I was also his, uh, his, uh, his manager. So he's, he's uh, somebody that I really love. And, and he's got a really um, deep connection with Canada also. Yeah. Uh, I also feel a connection with Canadian music. I've been involved one way or the other in my career many times with a lot of Canadian artists and always feel at home there. And right now, even with our small roster, we also manage Martha Wainwright, who's right. you know, not, not, uh, you know, she's in Quebec, but that still yeah, counts. That's, that's still Canada. Counts. Of course, that's Canada. <laughs> J'adore Quebec. Um, so that's amazing. And, and, and as a producer, were you with Steve? Because he also did a Ron Sexsmith record that I think is fantastic, uh, Blue Boy. Uh, yeah, do you know, I don't remember. Yeah, I've heard him talk about that. It, I don't think I was involved with him when he did that because I just don't have any memory of it. I'm aware that he did right. it. So I don't know. Maybe I was at the label. So I wasn't involved with him as a producer then. Right. Uh, it must have been something like that. Yeah. Well, it's great because his work as a producer stands up. And I love The Revolution Starts Now as well. That record, uh, which I think is just before the Transcendental, or sorry, the uh, Washington No, no, Square. that's after. Yeah, is yeah, after? yeah. The, 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 no, first was Transcendental Blues, Jerusalem, uh, Revolution Starts Now. That's it. Uh, that yeah, I love that sequence. Record. And then Washington Square Serenade. And the thing about the song, The Revolution Starts Now, which is the, you know, the title song of the album, I don't know if you noticed, just a few days ago, uh, uh, Ann Wilson from Heart covered it. 
Oh, no, it's great. So there's a new cover version of it, and there's a little Rolling Stone piece talking about how it's perfect for this time and stuff. And, I'll put it up. You know, I'll put it on the it's list. Just, uh, it's just, uh, it makes me so happy. I mean, that's, that's not, you know, I don't know that other people have covered that song. That might be the first cover of Revolution Starts now. It's great. It's a great record. I mean, I love the one about Condoleezza Rice on there, Condi Condi, and there's, there's so many good moments on that. Uh, do you want to throw a song or two? I know when we were texting about this show, you mentioned a Bob Dylan song. Well, you know, I'm a Bob Dylan freak. You know, that was my favorite artist growing up, and he's still my favorite artist. And I, I, I don't love every single thing he's ever done as much as I loved his early records, but I do love his most recent record, the one that he released during the pandemic. Uh, yep. And, and, and uh, you know, the song that got a lot of attention initially was Murder Most Foul, which I think is terrific. But I, I, as I've got to know the album better, I fell in love with this song called Mother of Muses. Yep, Mother of Muses. Put a little on in the background here. I, I love this record for the same reason that it's like, what a brilliant thing to do, put out a 17 minute song when people have nothing but time on their hands, you know? Yeah, well, you know, I think he wrote it earlier. He's written long songs in the past. Yeah, but the Has timing of the release, minutes, it was sure like the timing of the release. Yeah, well, Desolation Row is 12 right. minutes and Santa yeah, yeah. Lady of the Lowlands, I think 14. It's, and yeah. then they had that long song about the Titanic, you know. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Which is not my favorite song of his. No, me neither. Um, but um, the timing of its release, like a few weeks into the quarantine, was mind-blowing, especially the connectivity with the assassination of John F. Kennedy, which was so traumatic to, especially to people that like of my generation. And then it, you couldn't help but feel maybe this has the same level of intensity, but instead of one president being assassinated, you know, it's a, a couple of hundred thousand non-famous people being assassinated, you know? Yeah, no, good, uh, very good point. Uh, you know, not that it's the same, but the, the weird, what the, the similarity was the sense of, unreality weirdness where are we what is this country you know yeah and I, I just that song really killed me but this uh you know he's got a cosmic sweet spiritual side too dylan he's got so many facets and i like that side of him and this mother of muses is just to me like a hymn amazing well it's going on the list um have you have you crossed paths with with Dylan himself? Is that an artist you ever gotten a chance? I to? got to spend a couple of hours with him once. It was like God just took pity on me after all the years of saying how much I love Bob Dylan inside my head, and it was a long time ago. It was um, it was um, in the eighties, uh, I think. I gotta I gotta get my brain into my uh, time schedule. No, it was the seventies, and it's when he had finished the film Ronaldo and Clara. Right. Uh, excerpts of which were repurposed for the Rolling Thunder film that came out on Netflix and other Scorsese, places yeah. here. Um, but a lot of that footage from that tour was originally in Ronaldo and Clara. And I had a PR company then, and uh, Bearsville Records was owned by his former manager, Albert Grossman, who he's still on speaking terms with. And he asked Albert about a publicist. So I, I got to watch this four-hour film with him and he talked me through it, and I had a few conversations with him, and then he decided not to hire me as a publicist. But I did have the experience of, uh, uh, you know, uh, at least hanging out with him for a few hours, which, which certainly scratched an itch. That's pretty uh, amazing. I've also got lucky with, with, you know, I did not have a conversation with him about what I'm about to mention, but I got blessed with his talent because you mentioned that I had worked with Warren Zevon. 
and 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 uh, after Warren died, uh, we did a tribute album of different artists doing Dylan songs. And what happened is uh, Warren hated doctors, and the only doctor he trusted was his dentist, named Stan Golden, who by coincidence was also my dentist. Have I have I told you the story? No. Oh. Right, bring it on. Bring so it Stan, on. so it. Stan Golden was just such a great dentist. But and it turns out he's Bob Dylan's cousin. They grew up in Minnesota. They like saw Buddy Holly together. They were friends. They were like just one year apart or a few months apart. Wow. And 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 you walk into the office, there'd be like the, the the sheet lyric of "Blown in the Wind." You know, to Stan, to cousin Stan, the, the greatest dentist in the world. So Warren loved this guy also, and um, and 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 so when he got sick, he he asked Stan what to do, and Stan went with him to the oncologist and and uh, when he was diagnosed with the cancer that killed him and so on yeah and then we're doing when warren was doing his last album um the wind um he called in all the favors he wanted to hit you know he was dying but he was still a competitor he said let's use this you know so he had don henley on the record and bruce springsteen did a duet with him and and uh, uh jackson brown of course his old friend and tom petty and Ry cooter played on it and then there was always the question would would dylan do something on the record and so stan so then uh, stan says uh well bob uh, bob thinks it would just be uh, shallow uh, to just do an overdub to do something on the record, but he'll he's going to do something else. So we're wondering what the hell does that mean? It's like <laughs> just doesn't want to be on a list with a lot of other people because he's on the top of Mount Olympus, Bob Dylan. But then a few weeks later, he's playing at the Universal Amphitheater. Unfortunately, I was in New York; I didn't go. And and Stan calls Warren and says, "You got to come with me to see Bob." Um, and and uh, Bob asks you to come. And so he's standing on the side of the stage and, and Dylan does three Warren Zevon songs. Oh, wow. So then after, after, um, after Warren died, um, uh, we're looking for things. And somebody, uh, I think Warren's son, um, Jordan, found on the internet a very good quality of a fan recording from that night of Warren doing um, uh, Mutineer. Right. And so I, call, I I contact Jeff Rosen, Dylan's manager. I said, look, I don't have any money. Artists records. We were about to, we we're close to going out of business. You know, I said, but it's Warren and Dylan. And, and he said uh, he listened to it. And I guess he played it for Dylan. They gave it to me for free. So wow. I got to release a Bob Dylan song. There you go. Uh, That's amazing. I, I signed Bob Dylan for one song. <laughs> And you know, uh, if you if you, that album, enjoy every sandwich. It's it's a beautiful version he does of Mutineer, and Springsteen does an incredible version of My Rides Here. It's yeah. it wasn't you know tribute albums usually don't sell a lot, and this one did okay, but nothing amazing. It's forgotten except by Zevon Freaks. But those two those two things are incredible. Well, one song that really hits me every time is uh keep me in your heart for a while that was on the wind was it not that was yeah that was the lead track uh that was the iconic track from the wind which ended up uh it came out uh two weeks before he died uh, i got to t i got to tell him it was in the top 20 and then yeah. he died you know and uh, and um and that was the um that was the iconic song uh you yes. know it was it was not a single in the conventional sense but that was the song that got played a lot on you know the radio stations that would play z1 and it was uh used in many many movies that song is uh 
that's yeah. become a that's become one of his best known songs. It's powerful, and then of course there was a huge tribute on the Grammys that year. I remember seeing that too. The same. Year oh, that, that was incredible, wasn't it? I know. Yeah. I was so uh, that you know there was just some, you know, this will sound like a crazy thing. So um, I just was look. I had a label. Beside the fact that I liked Warren a lot, and he was a great guy, a brilliant, interesting, fat person. Who, who I, I had a real love for, but I also was running a little company and trying to fucking sell records. And um, so I called, um, there's a woman named Tisha Fine uh, who, um, who booked talent for the producer of the Grammys. And I say, um, she said, look, she called, she said, look, I love this wine record. Do you think you could get, if you could get like Springsteen and Don Henley and Tom Petty and all those people, like then we could do something about Warren. So, you know, I call Springsteen's manager and it's like John Landry says, Bruce wasn't nominated for anything this year. He's, he's pissed at the Grammys. We're not even coming. And Don Henley, it's like, look, you know, I like them. I'm happy to sing on the record, but I, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, everybody says no, Don, you know, then I get to Jackson Brown. I figure, well, that's my ace in the hole. Jackson basically almost discovered Warren. You know, he's certainly the one who introduced me to Warren and he's also really what, got Warren his deal with Electra Records, you know, and all that, and produced a couple of his early records. And and Jackson says, man, I can't, I'm a horrible harmony singer. Uh, it's not what I do. I'm not a group, I, you know, because you know, she wanted it to be everybody singing that song. Like, get get Don Henley. He's, he's good. I said, well, he won't do it. Right. So he says, well, what about David Crosby? He, he's the great harmony singer. I said, yeah, but he's, he's not. They want somebody a little better known, you know. He's, yeah, yeah. You know, like you're a name they mentioned to me. He says, look, I just don't want to do it. I said, Warren, I really, so I said, Jackson, I really need this. I need to sell more records. I got this independent label. Yeah. And he paused. He says, okay, if you need it, I'll do it. Like he, he's that. So, so I call back Tisha. I say, look, I could, I could get Jackson. I can't get any of these other people. And she somehow talks the producer into it anyway, even, you know, and that was the same year Johnny Cash died. And instead of doing a Johnny Cash thing, they do the Warren thing. And, you know, and I asked Tisha afterwards, I said, how did this happen? I mean, I'm not, you know, why? You know, she said, I had this dream. I just, I had a dream where I just had, where he, I, <laughs> he said I had to do it. <laughs> the weird, of course, right? but it really, also it was, it was incredible. And then afterwards, we did a party. There's a place in Santa Monica called McCabe's Guitar Shop. Yeah. And they and they have a little uh, venue upstairs. It's a guitar shop on the ground floor. And then upstairs, it's a venue that holds like 100 people. It's a folk, it's a folk club, you know. Right. And, and, and we, we, we rented it out for our Grammy party. Because, you know, all the big labels had big parties. We had a little Grammy party at McCabe's Guitar Shop. And Jackson uh, did a whole set of him doing Warren Zevon songs. Oh, it's amazing, you know. And, and also, didn't didn't famously late in his very late in his life, didn't Warren go on and do like Letterman's show five nights in a row or something crazy? Well, like no, that? no. What what happened with Letterman, and this preceded me, you know, that that long before, like sort of at some point, um, you know, he had done the Letterman show a few times, and he was one of Letterman's favorite artists, and right. so Letterman made an arrangement with him where, whenever Paul Schaefer. Uh, you know, Paul Schaefer was Le uh, Letterman's uh, musical director. Right. But when Paul Schaefer would go on uh, vacation or uh, couldn't show up if it was the Jewish holiday or something like that, 
uh, Warren was the designated uh, a few times a year replacement for Paul Schaefer. Okay. And that visibility on Letterman, Warren always said, kept his career alive because he was five years without a record deal before I signed him at Artemis, you know. Right. And uh, then, of course, uh, when Warren was dying, uh, he did an entire hour uh, on That's the what it was. show. The whole episode. Which was, which was incredible. Letterman only did that one other time in the history of the show to devote the entire show to a guest. And that was with uh, Al Gore when he was vice president of the United States. Right. And that show with Warren doing Letterman, I mean, it was one of the most emotional things, uh, most beautiful and emotional things I've ever it was never enjoyed in the, in the aura it? of you know i got to you know at least be there for it and see him afterwards it's 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 i'm sure it's on the internet somewhere uh it's it's a hell of a thing he he did several songs and you know he like in in the interview letterman said look and you know you, you know you you know something that very few of us know which is that you know like you don't have that like much longer to live is there something you've learned that you sh could share with us and Warren says, I don't know, just enjoy every sandwich. Yeah. So yeah. that ended up being what we called the, it was Jordan Zivon's idea to call the tribute album, Enjoy Every Sandwich. But I remember that. That's quote. Warren Zivon. He never said that before. It wasn't <laughs> like that was a rehearsed line. He was that guy all the time. That's great. When you spoke to Warren Zivon, it was like he was always talking to you like in Warren Zivon lyrics. Writing lyrics as he spoke. Like he was that guy. That's amazing. That's so great. I mean, yeah, he's one of my favorites. I mean, you know, I mean, his his, his early catalog is, is so amazing, but he stayed good. He stayed, he was one of those guys that he, he always wrote a good tune. All right, I have about five more minutes and then I'm no, gonna- No, it's okay, we, we, we can wrap it up. I, I promised you 10 and here we've been going for 25. Oh so. man, listen, I'm so uh, grateful to do this with you, man. I'm so proud to work with you. And uh, I'm very flattered you. that you let me uh, into this part of your life as well. Thank you very much. This is so much fun for me, Danny. I, I could do this for hours with you, uh, but I'll wait till I see you again. And we could also dive into politics, but then the comments light up and, you know, it gets all... <laughs> you know, it's so, isn't that fantastic? We had an entire talk of however long, a half hour or so, and we didn't mention yeah. politics at all. Let's not uh, push our luck. Let's leave. Let's not push yeah. our luck. We'll do that on the phone. But, all right. um but thank you, Danny. Love you, man. And thanks for being here. And I'll see you really soon, I hope. All right. Later, man. Take Bye. care.